0: Tonight, we're in John chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much uh, for the gift of your Son, that we would have eternal life. And as we sang tonight about the depth of your love, and there's no limit to your love, As Father, right now, would you take the busyness of today and the distractions, the worries and the concerns... And would you bring peace in the midst of those challenges and struggles? And would you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand? And for some, John chapter 3 is a well-worn path. It's an area that we know well, a section of scripture. And God, would you just cause it to be fresh? Would you give us a fresh lens on the sacrifice of your son? ears to hear. And God, for some, this is the first time they've ever gone through John chapter 3, and would you minister to their hearts. So Jesus, we're here to draw near to you, and we pray that you'd minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. John gives us the purpose of why he's writing. And don't you appreciate that? When someone's giving you a note or or writing you a letter, they give you the purpose. And John says, this is why I'm writing these things. In chapter 20, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And through believing, you may have life through his name. So John's very selective on what he shares. Seven miracles. Of all the miracles of Christ, he only shares seven. And then also the seven I am statements of Jesus Christ. I'm the bread of life and I am the door. But also salt and peppered in the midst of this is Jesus' interaction with people one at a time. What I love about Christ is he never interacted with people the same way. He touched people in entirely different ways. And it's because we're individuals and God has his own unique relationship with us. And so what's recorded for us in this chapter is Christ's interaction with a man named Nicodemus. So verse one of chapter three, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. As we've been going through the gospels, we've gotten pretty familiar with the Pharisees, haven't we? There are these group of guys that started off well. They set themselves apart to follow the letter of the law. But they got very legalistic and they added to the word of God. They missed the, the heart of God and they got focused more on the outward than the inward. And we find that Nicodemus, he's a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. So not only did he have religious power, but he also had political power in making decisions over, over the people. But there was something missing in his heart and his life that provoked him to take a step in verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him. So all of the religion, all the rules and regulations, all of the position and power, he probably had a significant amount of money as well, didn't produce a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he came longing for that relationship with Jesus Christ. So he comes to Jesus by night. Now, Nicodemus has gotten quite the bad rap for this, for coming at night. And most people assume that he was afraid. He was afraid to be associated with Jesus because the Pharisees hated Jesus and they were wanting to to kill Jesus. But I want you to think about something else as well, is this is the Middle East. It's very hot and it's very common in the Middle East to come up on your flat roof at night in the cool of the evening and it was a great time for conversation already a lot of people are beginning to rally around Jesus Christ, it would be hard to have a one-on-one conversation with Jesus. So it may have been that Nicodemus was afraid, but it also may have just been that this was a great time to have a conversation with Christ. He comes, and this is important. Maybe you're longing for something more. You're saying, I want more than rules and and regulations. I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to check off the boxes. You know Christ is your Savior, and you're saying... It's been a busy week. I can hardly keep my thoughts straight here on this Wednesday night. And you came to seek the Lord. But great things happen in our lives when we take time out to come and have a conversation with Christ, to seek Him. This is what Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know that you are the teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus has already been watching the early ministry of Jesus Christ. The cleansing of the temple, I'm sure, got the attention of Nicodemus. The wedding feast that we read about last week, where Jesus took the water and he turned it into wine, and how the wine was symbolic of joy in our lives. How did we do on that this week? Did we take our water? Did we take what is mundane and put it over into the hands of Christ and allow him to bring joy? But he gotten the attention of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus says, there's something special about you. You're doing these signs and these miracles. The only way that you can do this is that you're from God. verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus just makes a huge colossal leap in the logical flow of the conversation. I mean, here's Nicodemus, and he's saying, you've got to be from God. And what's the response from Jesus. You've got to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. Jesus has a way of doing that. He gets to the heart of the issue. We come to Christ and we say, hey, this is my question. This is possibly my disagreement. This is what's going on. And Jesus is like, no, no, this is what's going on. This is the real need in your life. You need to be born again. And that's what Nicodemus needed. He needed a spiritual birth in his life following the rules and the regulations of the law, hadn't produced this spiritual birth inside of his life. He needed to be born again. Well, this is going to cause some question in Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, don't you think Nicodemus said this with some humor and sarcasm? Like, how in the world is this going to happen? I'm a grown man. I'm no seven pounder anymore. How am I going to enter into my mom's womb and be born a second time? And all of the moms are saying, ouch, right? You're like, no, that is definitely not going to happen and take place. I saw a bumper sticker uh, this summer that said something to the effect of, you know, I'm doing all right born the first time. And what they're expressing is there's no need for a second birth. In my life, there's no need for me to, to be born again because I'm doing just fine as I was born the first time. Nicodemus is thinking about the physical while Jesus is focusing on the spiritual. And that's a lot of times where we miss what God's doing in our lives. We're hearing what God's saying and His Word and what His Spirit is speaking to us, but it's not hitting our hearts because we're focused on the physical instead of the spiritual. Verse 5 Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the first birth is of water. And the second birth, though, has to be of the Spirit. Unless the Spirit of God is working in the hearts of a person, then they're not born again. They're not a part of the kingdom of God. And we can look back in our lives and think about... When we came to know Christ as our savior, and take a moment if you know Christ to to go back to those events that were leading up to you opening up your heart and mind to Jesus Christ. The spirit of God was doing a work, right? And it's the spirit that then brings in that spiritual life and that new life and being born again in Christ Jesus. And this is the wonderful thing about being saved is you really are born for the second time of the spiritual nature And scriptures tell us that we're a new creation in Christ, that old things have passed away. And if you spend time with those who don't know Christ as their Savior, you can see the need for that second birth, can't you? And for us, many things may be going wrong in our lives or maybe discouragement in our lives, but we have this second birth of the Spirit of God bringing us to Christ and continue working in our lives. In verse 6, it says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is very clearly saying there's two separate births. There's the time that you're born physically, but there's also the time that you need to be born spiritually. A lot of people may assume, and this is kind of becoming more of a popular teaching today, it's universalism. And it's Jesus died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he redeemed all of mankind, whether they believe or they don't believe. And so just being born physically means that you're automatically in the kingdom of God. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you're born physically, but you're born in this condition where you're dead spiritually and you need to have life. You need to be born again. Two separate births. In verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus can read Nicodemus' heart and his facial expressions. He's saying, hey, don't marvel. Don't be blown away that I'm telling you, you need this experience, this second birth to take place. And Christ now explains it. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So we see the effects of the wind, don't we? We can't see the wind, but we can feel it upon our face. We can see it blow the leaves on the branches. We see the effect of the wind, but we can't see the wind. And that's like the Spirit. We see the effect of the Spirit on someone's life and upon our lives, but yet we can't see it. And we can't control it, but we desperately need it. I was observing just God's creation. Do you enjoy doing that sometimes? Just taking... A break in the midst of a busy day and we get some wind here in Colorado Springs don't we and I think it was just yesterday it was a little bit breezy and there was a group of trees and I was watching these trees and the wind was blowing upon the trees and it just provoked in my heart and my spirit to pray for the move of God's spirit in my life and in my home and in our church because we desperately need that don't we I mean, we can go through the motions of reading Scripture and coming and singing worship songs and studying God's Word together. Maybe you do the men's, women's Bible study. You're in a small group. All of those different things. But if the Spirit of God's not moving in our midst, it's God's Spirit that touches hearts and changes lives. You know, I can remember growing up and going to church time and time again And then as I got older into high school, I felt the spirit of God moving in my heart and in my life and touching my heart and melting my my cold heart. And God, he gives us this promise that he's a good father and he knows how to give good gifts. And if we being evil, know how to give good gifts to our kids, how much more so our perfect heavenly father. And he'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so praying that in our lives, praying that in our church, in our community, in our city. God, would your Holy Spirit work and move in the lives of people? When someone comes to know Christ as their Savior, it's this work of the Spirit of God blowing in their hearts and their lives. We can't control it. It's God's work. God's sovereign. He's powerful. But we can humbly come before the Lord and submit ourselves to Him and say, God, would you do a work of your Spirit? In verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And this is blowing the mind of Nicodemus. Maybe if you're hearing this for the first time, it's kind of blowing your mind too. And you're like, I don't know so much about this being born again. I've heard people refer to themselves as being born again. And this just seems too weird. And how can this be? And what exactly is Jesus talking about? And that's what Nicodemus here is referring to. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and do you not know these things? And if you don't think that Jesus had a sense of humor and a good wit about him, I mean, study the Gospels closely. And this guy is a ruler and a teacher of the Jews, and I picture Jesus with a little smirk on his face, maybe putting his hands in his pockets or his robe at that time, crossing his arms and going, hey, aren't you the expert around here? Aren't you the hotshot teacher? And you don't even know these things about the need for a second birth or the need for the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life. But that's not in the law, is it? I mean, the law is like, you do this and if you do it perfectly, then you have God's favor and God's blessing. But it's not a move and work of the Spirit of God bringing you to that place of salvation and this is all new to nicodemus in verse 11 most assuredly i say to you we speak what we know and testify what we've seen and you do not receive our witness all of a sudden this is plural right what in the world's happening in our text the father the son the holy spirit here the spirit is working on nicodemus's heart Jesus is testifying. The Father is bearing witness. It's the witness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but yet one. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, we're bearing witness to you, but you're not receiving it. From verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you not believe if I tell you heavenly things? That's a good question for Nicodemus. You know, if, if Jesus explains something earthly, like how a crop would grow or how the engine of a car is designed if they had car engines back at that time. But if Jesus were to explain something earthly, Nicodemus wasn't ready to receive it. How much more so when it comes to these heavenly things. And so let me ask you a question in the middle of this Bible study. Are you willing and you ready to receive what Jesus has to share with you? Not what I've got to share with you, But as we read the scripture tonight, what Jesus has to share with you, we're reading his words tonight. Because a lot of times we're not in that place. Even if he were to tell us something earthly, like, hey, your refrigerator's gonna go out. Are we ready to receive that? You know, if we're not ready to receive the earthly things, how about the spiritual things? What if God's got something tonight just to blow our minds and deepen our understanding of Christ? What if he's got a neat word of encouragement for you? What if he's got some correction that he knows is going to save us from a lot of heartache? Are we ready to receive? And that was the challenge to Nicodemus, and it's a challenge for us too. In verse 13, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. So at this point, no one has ascended to heaven, and keep that in mind. Prior to Jesus dying upon the cross, no one could go into the presence of the Father because their sin hadn't been paid for and the law isn't a solution for our sin trying to be a good person and making sure that you live up to perfection can never get us into the place of heaven no one's ascended to heaven all false religions have this in common it's a works-based religion that if you do your part then you can ascend to heaven and quite honestly that's why it's so attractive to people because it appeals to our pride Oh, I can do this. If I just work hard enough, I can be a good person. All of those kind of things. But here's God's solution. Not that you ascend to heaven. Not that we try hard to reach God. But that God came down to rescue us. That the Son of Man descended from heaven. And we can't even begin to try to grasp this. We talked about it in John chapter 1. The king of kings, the creator of the universe, humbled himself, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of God. Amazing. And this points to the love of God. And what now Jesus is doing is he's explaining to Nicodemus how you're born again. How is someone born for the second time spiritually? It's through the work and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the humility of Christ is expressed in his incarnation but then also is crucifixion, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now write down Numbers chapter 21, because if you don't know Numbers chapter 21, this verse is difficult to understand. What's the best commentary on the Bible? The Bible. That's complicated, isn't it? But we compare scripture with scripture and we get understanding. Why did Moses lift up the serpent in Numbers 21? Because the children of Israel were grumbling and complaining. They got sick and tired of being in the wilderness. After being over in Israel this year, I can understand. When we're talking about wilderness, we're not talking about Pagosa Springs, Colorado. I mean, we're talking about pretty much Buttsville. I mean, just absolute nastiness. is what. I shouldn't have said that, but that's exactly... Okay, Armpitsville. <laughs> there, there you go. Hot, dry, no water. You're wondering for your survival. And they're like, I'm, I'm tired of being out here in the wilderness. I mean, we feel that way in our own lives spiritually, don't we? Where we might be having a roof over our head and water to drink, but I'm tired of this situation. I'm t- when is the good times going to come? So what did the children of Israel do? Well, they complained specifically against Moses and against God they say god why did you bring us out here and you abandon us and all those kind of things so god actually sent serpents to start biting them good lesson on what complaining does to the soul it's a real vivid expression you want your soul to be bit with serpents then just start complaining and and so here comes these serpents starting to bite them literally and they start dying So they cry out to Moses, say, Moses, will you pray for us? And Moses prays and God says, okay, here's the solution. All the way back in Numbers 21, I want you to take a bronze serpent and put it up upon a pole. And when anyone looks to this serpent, then they'll be healed. But it's only by looking to this bronze serpent upon the pole, believing that God will heal them, that they will experience healing. And God was foreshadowing The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, all the way back in Numbers 21. We're bit with the curse of sin. And Jesus became the serpent for us and was lifted up upon the cross so that all that look upon Jesus Christ are saved. Some died there in Numbers 21 because they wouldn't look to the serpent on the pole. How can this save me? How can this heal me? This is absolute foolishness. I don't believe God can heal me if I look to the serpent upon the pole. And that's a lot of people's response to Christ's work upon the cross, right? Saying, I'm not going to look to the cross. I'm not going to look to Jesus and turn to him and believe that he's paid the price for my salvation. I can do it on my own. I can fix my own sin problem. And some of us at this point, and I think it's hard to wrap our heads around, is did Jesus really say as the serpent and compared himself to the serpent? So, Jesus became man, but he also became the serpent, meaning that he took our sin upon himself. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it tells us, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Sometimes for us, there's wickedness that's so bad, even though we're sinners, it's still accosts our system and we say how could someone be like that how could someone do this this is a horrific type of evil but imagine that you're God you're perfect you've never sinned and now you're having to take on the sin of all humanity all the sin that I've ever done all the sin that we've ever done all the sin of the whole entire world so that whoever looks to Jesus Christ would be saved it's also said In Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Isn't that powerful? He became the serpent. He became the curse. He took on sin for us so that all that look to Jesus will be saved. Now Jesus describes how we look to him in verse 15 and verse 16. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. God is love. That's what First John tells us. The definition of God is love. And here we find that God being love demonstrated his love. For God so loved the world that he gave. He demonstrated it by the gift of his son. And we think about what does God mean by the world? He doesn't mean the cosmos, he means the people. For God so loved the world. D.L. Moody, early on in his ministry, was over in Europe, and he met a young pastor by the name of Henry Morehouse. Didn't know him very well, and he said kind of flippantly, if you ever make it to Chicago, you can come preach in my church. You can come fill in the pulpit. So a few months later, he gets a telegram, and guess who it is? Henry Morehouse, and he says... On my way to Chicago in the United States, see a Sunday. So D.L. Moody was actually really pretty concerned about this, and he talked to his chief advisor, which of course was his wife, and also the other elders in the church, and he's saying, What should I do? You know, I, I don't really never heard this guy preach before. And I, I said that I would allow him to, to come. And after considering and praying it, he decided that he would let him teach that Sunday, and he was out of town and he was teaching somewhere else. and he comes back and asks his wife, well, how did he do? And his wife must have been quite the honest and fiery lady. And she said to D.L. Moody, well, he's a better preacher and teacher than you are. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? You know, he said, well, he's emphasizing the love of God. He talked about John three sixteen the whole time about how God loves sinners. And actually at that point in D.L. Moody's journey, he's like, well, that's not right. God doesn't love sinners. You know, and I don't know about this. I better go hear this young guy preach some more. And he went and listened to him for a week. And God convicted D.L. Moody and put the love of God in D.L. Moody's heart for sinners based on John 3.16. And, you know, you can go out there and you can find messages of pastors saying, God hates you. God hates you. You know, and they feel real led by God to emphasize the, the wrath of God. And we find in Romans chapter 2 that God says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And it may be difficult for you to wrap your mind around, but God really does love the world. He loves every person in the world. No matter how horrific their deeds are, how grave their sin is, God loves them. And he demonstrated his love for them by giving his son to die upon the cross. And I think if we begin to take people out of that equation, we begin to minimize the word of God. God means what he says. He loves the world. He loves every person that's ever been created by God. And maybe you're doubting the love of God. You're saying, how could God really love me? Looking at the choices and the decisions and even my hard heart towards God, and I even know better and those type of of things. But God demonstrated it. He's already proven it and showing it by giving the greatest gift, his son, his only begotten son. Now, parents, we try to wrap our minds around this. And we think about giving the life of our child up for anybody else. And we can't do it. I honestly cannot do it. I've got four wonderful, beautiful kids that I absolutely enjoy. And I wouldn't give one of them for the whole lot of you. I gotta just be honest with that. You know, I don't have that compassion in my heart and I love you guys too, but there's something very different when it comes to our own children. But yet God in his love gave his son to be lifted up upon the cross so that we could all be the sons and the daughters of God. And I think at different points in our journey and our walk with God, we wrestled as God love me. And that can be settled, and we can be reminded of that by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. And then at other times, we'll really struggle with, does God love this person? You know, they're a real pain in my side. They're real difficult to deal with, and I'm just going to kind of politely omit them out of John 3.16. You know, God could not love them, right? But God does love them, and he gave his son equally for them as well. He's demonstrated his love for us. And then it goes on and it says that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the object of God's love is the world. The proof of God's love is the gift of his son. But then who receives the love of God is who believes in him. Who looks to Jesus upon the cross. That believes that Christ's sacrifice upon the cross is enough to pay for their sins and their death and their resurrection. And we do not want to take anything away from the gospel. We don't want to overcomplicate it. We don't want to put layers between the gospel and people. God knows the hearts of people. And if they truly turn and repent from their sin and look to Jesus Christ and believe that he died for them and rose again, what's God's promise? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever is... The largest, largest word in the dictionary. Can you imagine if you threw a little party at your house and just said, whoever wants to come, you know? Just put it out there on Facebook and Twitter and whatever else is out there. Got on the news station and the radio station and said, hey, if you don't have any place to live, you can come live at my house. Whoever, right? In Colorado Springs, be like, you're crazy. You don't know who's gonna show up at your house. You do that, right? And God's saying, no, whoever, whoever believes. And we begin to try to rationalize this away one way or another, but it's God's open door of salvation. Amber, my wife, she's really good at cooking and blessed and had some wonderful bean soup even before church tonight. But she makes these scones that are to die for with this rich cream on there. It's just wonderful. And I learned early on in our marriage I came in one day after working at the church and just began to enjoy these scones without asking any other questions. She's like, no, no, no. These are from some some ladies Bible study that was happening. You ladies eat well when you get together. That's your secret. I know that, you know. So I've learned an important question is I ask, hey, who are these for? And when she says, oh, whoever, guess what? I'm a whosoever. And I can go in and enjoy those scones and God's saying hey my love is for anybody who will believe not if you're going to try to earn it Nicodemus was used to keeping rules it wasn't you do the rules you do the regulations it's Nicodemus you're going to have to come to me through faith you're going to have to come and believe in my work that I'm going to do upon the cross I think that that was harder for Nicodemus you take a moral person that has their life together from an outward perspective and tell them, look, you can't earn this. You can't deserve this. You can't pay God back. You only believe in what Christ has done. And I'm sure Nicodemus was wrestling. But then think of this promise, but shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice this is something that we can possess, everlasting life. Through faith in Jesus Christ, there can be assurance of salvation. And if Christ is in our hearts and in our lives, he is gonna impact us and there's gonna be a difference in our lives. James tells us that faith without works is dead. So if we have true faith in Jesus Christ, it's gonna be evident in the way we live our lives, not that we're gonna be perfect, but also in this relationship with Christ is assurance that you know in your heart that you have everlasting life, that that's a gift that God has given to you through faith. And this is real, everlasting life, is real. I had a young gal in our our fellowship last week go home to be with the Lord, Rose. She died in the storm last week, 17 years old. And I got to tell you, everlasting life is real. She's more alive than she ever has been before. And we think of God's promise that he gives to us in Revelation 21 verse 4, that God's going to wipe away every tear. Jesus wept here on this earth So that he could wipe away our tears for all of eternity. Where there's no more sickness, no more death, nor more sorrow. It's very real for those that know Christ as their Savior. Jesus said that he's going to prepare a place for us. And that he's going to come back and receive us unto himself. This world is far out. It's great what the Lord has created. Can you imagine how good heaven's going to be? So Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. Because I'm preparing a place for you. Because of everlasting life maybe you're having a tough day, a tough week, a tough year, shoot, a tough decade, you know, just been tough all around. If you know Christ and you believe Christ, and more importantly that he knows you, guess what, you've got an everlasting life. And that everlasting life, it starts now, because everlasting life is all about knowing him. And we get that privilege to begin that right now, that journey right now of knowing Christ. Man, I never get tired of John 3.16. It's just such a good verse, isn't it? There's so much there. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This hit me this week. And just praying and preparing for tonight is the purpose that Christ came was to bring salvation and not judgment. And when I approach people, am I dealing with them and wanting to bring the good news of the gospel and see them saved and encouraged in Jesus Christ, or am I bringing judgment? And it's easy for us as as believers, I think, to want to bring judgment for some reason. You know, grace is really great in my life, but judgment's wonderful in your life, right? There's just something that's twisted about that. But Jesus came not to bring judgment, but to bring salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that he won't bring judgment, but that his purpose was for those would be saved who would believe And verse 18 clears that up for us. It says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is very clear. If you believe in Christ, you're not condemned. You have salvation. True saving faith. But if you don't believe, you're condemned already. If someone goes through their whole entire life Rejecting Christ, not seeing the need for Christ, not looking to Christ upon the cross, just like those in Numbers 21 who wouldn't look to the serpent and trust for God's healing, they died. And here, the scripture is very clear, they shall perish. They won't have everlasting life. And Jesus isn't talking about just a physical death, but eternal separation from God, condemned. So it's very important what people choose to do with Jesus Christ in this lifetime in verse nine and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil so this is why they're condemned it's not god that is being so angry and vengeful but god's confirming their choice light came into the world jesus is the light jesus provided this way for salvation but men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil, and we have to understand that there was a time in our lives before Christ where we just loved darkness and there's many people here tonight in Colorado Springs that are in a place where they're saying, "I love darkness there's some right now that are wrestling you 're wrestling with saying, "Oh, it sounds so good, the love of God and having my sins forgiven and salvation and everlasting life, but I also really like what i 'm into, and I know if I receive Christ as my savior." that he's going to put his finger on that, and he's going to begin to want to change that in my life. And I don't know if I can give up that relationship. I don't know if I can give up this habit, and that's the wrestling that is taking place. In verse 20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And this is important for us to understand. If someone's living in a lifestyle of evil, they hate the light. There's no appreciation for the light, and then the light exposes their evil deeds and no one likes to be exposed. In verse 21, that he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they may be done in God. This is the opposite response. Instead of someone saying, you know, I hate the light. It's a coming to the light, walking in the truth and we want God to expose everything in our lives. Bugs are interesting creatures. They kind of have different responses to light. You've got the moth response, right? They just love the light. Good idea to have screens in Colorado Springs if we have Miller moth breakout plague style, right? Because the moths, they're just they're just going to come in to the light. But then you've got some of those dark nasty. Creatures that when you turn on the light, what do they do? They <laughs> spray away, because they're creatures of the night, you know? And that's really kind of the responses that people can have to Jesus Christ. He's the light. We can be drawn to Him. We can be exposed by Him. We say, I want my whole life to be in the light of Jesus Christ. Or there's these people that say, I don't want anything to do with Christ, and I'm going to go to the darkest corners. We have to understand that there is a real battle of dark and light, have you seen this? You can talk about anything you want at your job. All, all kinds of perversity is talked about at the workplace. I mean, people come back from their weekend and they're talking about this and that that they did over the weekend. But then just you try saying John fourteen six at the workplace and see what happens. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Ah! You know? hate speech, I can't believe that you're bringing that hate speech in, into this workplace, and you're so judgmental, and I'm reporting you to HR, and you could lose your job, and all those kind of things, and you're like, I don't understand, you know, you just told me you're having a relationship with your dog, you know, and you're, you're into all, you're into that, you're into bestiality, you know, and you're, you're promoting that. And then I came in here and said, Jesus loves you and he died on the cross for you and he's the only way to salvation. And I'm the one getting in trouble. Your relationship with your dog offended me. You know what I'm saying? And, and people promote those, those kind of things. But the moment that you bring up Christ, then all of a sudden there's a response. Why? Because there's a spiritual issue and people don't want to come to light. And there's that battle that's taking place. And there's some comfort for us in that. We need to be wise. We need to be loving We can't take our unrighteousness, you know, and put Christ's name upon it. But if we're truly being persecuted for righteousness sake, we can understand that the real battle is with Christ and the fact that he's the light of the world. Where did I leave off? 22? 22. Hey, I was right. Praise the Lord. 22. We've even got time to finish the chapter. Need a bathroom break? Seventh inning stretch? A little bit? I won't tell anybody, even if you're sitting on the front row. Steve? No, you're okay? All right. Verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. So Jesus comes and begins to baptize, and we know specifically, as we'll read later on in in chapter 4, that the disciples were doing the baptizing. In verse 23, verse 23, Now, John also was baptizing in Anon near Salmon because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. So this is John the Baptist. So he's baptizing. Jesus' disciples are baptizing. Now, why did John the Baptist choose this particular location for baptism? Because there was a lot of water there. Sometimes we don't have to over-spiritualize decisions. You know, John wasn't like, this is the perfect mystical place to have baptisms. The Spirit of God's stronger here. No, there was water there, so they had baptisms there. Yeah. My pastor in Southern Oregon, it was a real work of God that took place. Small town, two small towns, a town of 16,000, and a town of maybe 50,000, 40,000. And then it was a half hour drive to church each way. So it was kind of a triangle if you left from Grants Pass, Oregon, or Medford, Oregon. And a lot of people, when they do church plants, they do demographic studies. We're like, where's the most people, and where can I get a cheap warehouse that's close to the freeway, and all those kind of things. And that wasn't my pastor, John. I mean, it was actually really hard to get to church. And it wasn't like here, where you drive a half hour all the time. Like, to drive a half hour somewhere was, was a big deal. And when I was growing up, there was probably, I don't know, at different times, like five to 8,000 people that were coming to, to, to this church. There was just a real move of God and the Spirit. And in the summer, they would have baptisms in the or amphitheater, outdoor services. And every Sunday, people were getting saved and getting baptized. And you'd stay and watch people get baptized for hours if you wanted to stay Uh, long enough. There'd be times where his back was sore from baptizing people, and that's when another pastor would come in and start baptizing people. And everybody would always ask him, how did you decide to plant a a church here in the Applegate Valley? And he said, I really liked it. That was his answer, you know. (laughs) And as he was in his young 20s, in his early 20s, he was from Southern California, and he just liked Southern Oregon and especially the Applegate Valley, and some people said, hey, we need a church up there. And he checked it out, and him and his wife, they really liked it. And Psalms 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, the trick is, you have to be delighting in the Lord. Otherwise, don't follow the, your, the, the desire of your heart. But sometimes we overcomplicate decisions, and it's as simple as, I like it, you know? I live here because I like it. I started a church here because I I like it, you know. I baptized here because there was water here. Wow, it was amazing. And verse 24, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. The first time reading through John 3, you're like, what? John got thrown into prison? Absolutely. As you continue to study in the Gospels, John the Baptist was thrown into prison for speaking righteousness. And it's not what you would expect for the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the one that would point people to the Messiah. But it's what the Lord worked in John the Baptist's life. And John the Baptist did struggle with that, but remained committed to the Lord. In verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. So John the Baptist had disciples, and they start arguing with the Jews about baptism. Whose baptism is greater and better, that of Jesus or that of John the Baptist? In verse 26, then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you've testified. Behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. You're saying, John, aren't you gonna get a little upset here? I mean, everybody was coming out to you and now they're going out to Jesus Christ. Aren't you gonna be jealous? In verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. And that's important to understand. John realizes, hey, these people didn't belong to me. They're the Lord's. And every good and perfect gift comes from God. And this is humility. You know, if the Lord's blessing and working in your life, if he gives it, if he takes it away, it was all a gift from God. And so John recognizes if something is given to us, it's given from the very hand of God. In verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And John says, you know, I'm not the one that people should be following. And John always saw himself in an accurate light. He knew he was a sinner and his job was to point people to Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. People need to be following Jesus Christ. We need to remember that, especially in this day and age, don't we? We don't ever want to draw attention to ourselves God forbid, we don't want people following us or our personality or any of those kind of things. We want to be like John the Baptist and direct people to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist did his job. People fell in love with Jesus. And that's what we want to do. We want to point people to Jesus where they go right past us. They see Jesus and they follow Jesus. Gives us illustration in verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled John's not bummed this is why he exists and his joy is fulfilled like the friend of a bridegroom saying i'm there to rejoice in the joy that the bride and the bridegroom have. And John's rejoicing that everybody is now following Jesus Christ. Here's a key phrase. It's worth underlining and memorizing. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the way John lived his life. He wanted the knowledge of Christ, the popularity of Christ, the majesty of Christ to be made much of, and he wanted to decrease. Now, this actually was fulfilled quite literally in John's life. He had a time of a great public ministry, but then God allowed for him to be arrested and ultimately to be martyred. And John continued to follow the Lord even in those times of being in prison and being martyred for standing for righteousness sake. Now that would be a hard thing, wouldn't it? I mean, imagine God's really using your life. Everywhere you go, you just see people falling in love with Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in prison. And then all of a sudden you find yourself being martyred and you're like, this isn't how I would anticipate things to have gone during this one season in my life. But, but John lived this and he accepted this. He wanted Christ to increase and for him to decrease. This is very important in our lives. We've got to allow our pride, our ego, our selfishness to be put to death upon the cross and for Christ to receive all the glory. And now in the last few verses of this chapter, he points people to Christ. He who comes from above is above all he's speaking of jesus he's the one who is descended he comes from above he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth and he who comes from heaven is above all christ has supremacy over all things verse 32 and what he has seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony so jesus as he comes from the father he gives us the first-hand experience of the glory of the father Want to know the glory of the Father? Study the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ. But people didn't respond to his testimony. In verse 33, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. So some reject the testimony of God, but those who receive the testimony of Jesus Christ, they certify that God is true. There's two responses to the testimony of God. In verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the word of God For God doesn't give the spirit by measure. So the father sent the son and the son speaks the word of God and he speaks it in the power of God through the power of the spirit. In verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Now, I think that there's something that we need to wrap our minds around if possible, if the spirit of God would open up our minds here in the last few moments of the Bible study is that God is three distinct persons but yet he's one. So as the father gave the son, in some people's perspective, they would go, well, how is that a loving father if he gave his son? You might even say, well, Eric, you just even told us that you couldn't give your kids for for anybody else. But understand it's deeper than that because the father and the son and the Holy Spirit are one. And so as the father gave the son, he also gave himself. Does that make sense? So it wasn't just the sacrifice of his son saying, you go pay the price, why, it doesn't affect me at all, but in the mystery of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, so he gave himself as well, and that's difficult to comprehend, but I think it's important for us, because I've actually heard some try to use the crucifixion of Jesus Christ against God, and say, well, God's not loving because the father sacrificed his son and I don't know if I want to serve a god that sacrificed his son But he also was giving himself. Does that make sense? If it doesn't then it's late on a wednesday night so <laughs> in verse 36 He who believes in the son has everlasting life and he who doesn't believe the son Shall not see life, but the wrath of god abides on him. What a wonderful and beautiful chapter as John the Baptist confirms the message of Jesus Christ and confirms the gospel. Now, before we go tonight, if you know Christ as your savior, in your spirit tonight, would you just absolutely rejoice that you have everlasting life? Would you just, just yeah, do some cartwheels. <laughs> <clears throat> that you know the love of God. And may God take us deeper and deeper and deeper in our understanding. But in the busyness and craziness of life, I know for me, sometimes it's easy to lose sight of that. And as we enter into communion, may we really take a moment to rejoice in the love of God and the gift of God and the promise of God. And also, let's go to prayer. Because God wants to touch hearts and change lives. There's those that don't know Christ as their savior where God would love to bring them into a saving relationship. So let's pray together and wait upon the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your love. We never get tired of studying it. It's so refreshing to see how much you love us that you would give your son, that you would give yourself for us. And so Father, now we just ask that you would touch the hearts of those that don't know you. Maybe some like Nicodemus that are very moral that look at other people and they go, man, I'm a pretty good person. But they know that something's missing in their life, it's grace, it's forgiveness, it's believing in what Jesus has done for them. Maybe it's someone who says, man, I'm the farthest thing from moral. I know that I'm a sinner and I'm fallen short. You know the heart. And Jesus, we believe your promise that whoever would believe that you would bring salvation and everlasting life. If you feel God tugging upon your heart and in your life and You've never opened up your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You've never looked to Jesus and trusted him for salvation. Would you just raise your hand and leave it up and hold it up high? And I'd like to pray with you and just wait for a few moments to see if anyone needs to receive Christ as their Savior. Well, Father, we just thank you for the opportunity even to share the gospel and take that moment to reflect on our own hearts. And Lord, may we just enter in now to your love in a deep way. May we be so in awe of your love that as we head on into our week, that we'd be so excited to share your love with others. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, would you really bless this time of communion in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Communion is available here in the front of the sanctuary.